Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. That's in the New Testament. It's been a while since we've been in the New Testament, but we're going to start. And we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians, starting in chapter 1, for the foreseeable future, something like nine weeks or so. The Bible's a, a crazy collection of writings. It's not just a book, it's 66 books. And it spans all these different sorts of genres and styles and all of that. And what's crazier, though, is as we move from six months in 24 chapters of Genesis to thousands of years later, this letter written from a church planter to a little church, they're still talking about the same thing. This is still about the power of God to save the world through Jesus the serpent crusher, the son of the woman, the promised one. That's what all this is about. Jesus says that in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. All these things, they're all about Jesus. And so we're shifting uh, genres and styles from old Hebrew narrative to first century epistle, etc. But we're not shifting subjects. We're still talking about Jesus. So when we understand, uh, when we come to study a biblical narrative like Genesis, we're thinking about character and setting and how the plot line is advancing and shifting and changing and what the story's doing, etc. But when we're thinking about an epistle in the New Testament, we've got slightly different considerations. We're thinking about who are the recipients? Who is this letter written to? And what's, the, what's their culture like? And what's the background of this letter? And And why is the letter being written? And what's the letter being written for? All of these sorts of things. So to that end, the first thing that you should know is that this is Paul and his co-authors, Sylvanus and Timothy, writing to a church plant in a part of Macedonia in northern Greece called Thessalonica. We read about this little church plant full of new believers in Acts 17. So Paul shows up to Thessalonica in Acts 17, and he goes to the synagogue. This was his normal practice when he gets to a new city, as he finds where people are already worshiping God, and he comes and proclaims to them first about Jesus. So he shows up to the synagogue, where you've got a bunch of devout Jews, and you've got a bunch of God-fearing Greeks and other Gentiles all there to learn and to worship. And from the Hebrew Bible, he starts explaining the good news of Jesus Christ to them that the one they've all been waiting for so long has come. The good news that Jesus died for their sins, was raised to conquer death for them, and is coming again to restore and recreate this whole mess into something perfect and to reign and rule over perfected, a perfected world and a perfected humanity forever. So he's proclaiming this incredible good news to them. And by God's grace, many people come to know Christ as their savior. They become believers. And so he did uh, the natural thing. The next thing then you, you do there is you, you plant a church. So he, pl- he plants a church. He forms, he organizes this, uh, ga- this bo- local body of believers into a body, something that can function and work together. The bad news, though, is that some of the Jews that didn't believe in Jesus in Thessalonica got very jealous and essentially caused so much severe trouble that Not only did they run Paul out of town, but he had to flee for his very life. Now that brings us to the situation. That's kind of the background of the letter. But what's the situation? Well, Paul has since fleeing. He's probably visited once or twice, it sounds like. But he's heard that that persecution that he experienced in Thessalonica hasn't stopped. 
Maybe it's gotten worse. The church is in a bad place. So because they're undergoing some pretty serious suffering and because Paul loves them, he relates his feelings about this church like a father feels about their children and then like a mother feels about his children. That's how Paul feels about this church plant, a parental affection and concern. So when he hears that they're, they're facing into just relentless persecution in the name of Christ, he's very concerned. So what he does with that concern is he sends Timothy. Timothy is one of the co-authors of the letter. He's a protege of Paul, another child in the faith that Paul has helped disciple. So Timothy goes to encourage them and to check in on this uh, fledgling church that's under so much pressure. See how they're holding up. Timothy comes back to Paul with this glowing report. He's like, you're not going to believe this. Man, they're alive. Like, yeah, they're in an, it, like a pressure cooker, but it's good. They're doing great, and God's got a hold of them. God is sustaining her, this church, even in the midst of her suffering. So now we get to why this letter is written. This letter is written because Paul has received that tremendous report from Timothy, and he's so encouraged that his encouragement just bubbles up into encouragement for them. He's burdened for them to know that God's at work in them. That even though it doesn't feel like it at times, God's got them. His letter is to strengthen them. That's the point. Strengthen them with the fact that God cares for them and is at work among them. And to strengthen them for the work ahead of growing in holiness and hope in the midst of suffering and hardship. That's what this letter is all about. Bless you. And it's not just for them. It's also for us. Because we are strengthened for the work ahead in a hard season by knowing and seeing and tasting that God is really at work among you. We need that today. In other words, today we're going to see from this text what it looks like when God gets a hold of a church. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we're going to read the whole chapter. But it's not as long as Genesis' chapters, so that's a positive thing. Here we go. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we, we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols 
to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Father, we give you thanks for your word now, and I ask for help in communicating the truth of the gospel. I ask for your Holy Spirit to work through me and through the text into us for the glory of Christ. Don't let your word fall to the ground, but make it powerful in us. Amen. All right, three main things we're going to look at under three headings today. One, God got a hold of you. And then two, the evidence of that. And three, the result. So let's jump right into number one, God got a hold of you. Let's read again verses two and three, thinking carefully here um, about the language and the picture that's being given. So this is Paul and his co-authors saying, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so behind this uh, text on the screen is this uh, a snapshot of a really sweet graphic that our brother Kyle made. Thank you, Kyle. I just ruined my illustration by thanking you. Here's my point. If I had said, thank you, Nicole, for Kyle's phenomenal graphic, that wouldn't work. You think, Kyle, Kyle did the work, Kyle made the art, it's lovely, right? Thank you, Nicole. <laughs> or anytime. So, or, you know, some time ago, our hot water heater went out. I just realized while saying that, that saying hot water heater is unnecessary. It's a water heater. <laughs> Sorry. Our water heater went out. <laughs> and our neighbor, Jason, came. Jason's made it into a lot of sermon illustrations. Jason came and helped me uh, repair and replace the hot water heater. You know. Um, so when I turn it on, and hot water pours out of the taps, and it feels great. And I go, and I pat the water heater, and I say, thank you, water heater. That wouldn't make any sense. I should go shake my neighbor's hand. He's the one that helped me do the thing. Now, do you see what I'm getting at in the text? Paul's saying, church, your faith is wonderful. Your love is remarkable. Your hope is in Christ. But he doesn't thank Nicole. And he doesn't thank the water heater. Who does he thank? God. That's a remarkable assertion right off the bat in verse 2 and 3. We give thanks to God for your faith, love, and hope. When God gets a hold of us, the gospel transforms us, deposits faith, love, and hope as gifts from God in our hearts and souls so that everything that flows out of that transformation is to his glory and his credit and not ours. That's what it looks like when God gets a hold of a church. And that's not shortchanging the people, right? Like their, their faith and their love and their hope is lovely. But this isn't, this isn't about like diminishing that it's actually strengthening to them. We need to know, not that we're doing a good job. That's fine. But the minute we start saying, look, look at what this good job I'm doing, we start getting prideful, don't we? At least I do. What we really need to know for strength is that God is powerfully at work in you. 
That is strengthening. God is at work. God is really faithful to you. The gospel really is powerful. You really have been transformed. That's what we need to know. Now let's look more closely at these three God-given Christ-like virtues, faith, love, and hope. It's hard to not say faith, hope, and love. That's the way we always say it. I don't know why. Here he talks about faith, love, and hope. First, let's think about how they're actually interrelated. These aren't three random things that Christians have. You know, like in my kitchen, I have a toaster, a refrigerator, and a floor. That's not the point. I'll come back to my kitchen later. (laughs) These things are related to each other very deeply. So faith, you know, for instance, feeds into love because faith receives the word of God and then love does something about it. Love puts our faith into action, doesn't it? And if we receive God's word by faith and we don't love, have we received God's word by faith? No. We've heard it, but we haven't done it, which means we haven't really heard it. So faith receives the word of the gospel. Love is faith in action. And hope is future-oriented faith and love. You follow? Hope is future-oriented faith and love. Faith on into the future, enduring toward the return of Christ. Love on into the future, enduring toward the return of Christ, toward the resurrection. That's how those things begin to relate to one another. But those three things, they're not uniquely Thessalonian gifts or Thessalonian realities. They're uniquely Christian realities, which means if you're a believer in Jesus, then this is about you as well. And this faith, love, and hope is in you as well. And they're not just static qualities. They're not a binary thing. You either have faith, you don't have faith. You have love, you don't have love. And there's no sort of uh, spectrum or quality to that. They're dynamic. They're energetic, if I can put it that way. So see that Paul says, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. In other words, your faith is a work-producing faith. Your love is a labor-producing love. And your hope in Jesus Christ is an endurance-producing hope. They're energetic. They're dynamic. They're on the move. They're growing. They're doing something. If we believe the gospel, we haven't just believed interesting information from a textbook. We've encountered the living God in such a way that we are transformed at the level of both what we think and what we do. Our faith generates a work, our love generates a labor, and our hope generates endurance. If we love like Jesus, then we'll labor in love. I, was th- I thought work and labor, these are synonyms, right? Why does he say work of faith, labor of love? Work is the word for just a thing, like a doing. It's just an action. Just, you know, your doings of faith, whatever you do. Labor is like you're sweating, you're in pain, you're gritting your teeth, it's uncomfortable, it hurts you, but it's good. Toil might be a good word for that. That's the difference. Our labor in love 
is a sacrificial love. That's what he's talking about. And if we have faith and love, they're all oriented toward the return of Jesus. And that certainty that Jesus is coming back to recreate this world and reign and rule over perfected humanity forever, that certainty gives us an endurance we could not otherwise have to remain steady under the pressures of life and continue our faith and love into the future. So when we see that fruit of faith, love, and hope, the things that they produce, we don't go, man, I'm good at faithing, really good at loving. We thank God for it, don't we? That orientation to where the normal fruit and work of the Christian life comes from and who gets the glory and who gets the credit is something we need to remind ourselves of constantly. And then we're strengthened because we need to know God's got us. So some of us walked in the doors this morning discouraged, wondering if we're growing at all. You feel that way. I mean, that's a normal Christian feeling. Like, am I changing at all? Is God doing anything with me? Is he involved with me at all? Well, do you believe the gospel? Are you loving the brothers and sisters? Do you hope in Jesus? Then he's got you. Before we move on to the next point, it's worth noting this, that you know we're, we, we are a church plant. We're one year and like four weeks old. And in the church planting world now, it's very common to, for people to talk about a fruitful ministry. And they, they will use as a synonym, a successful ministry. What does successful pastoral ministry look like? What does successful church planting look like? Here's where that is often going. What they often mean is, how many people have you led to Christ this week, this year? How many baptisms have you done? Those are good things. They are the fruit of ministry. But they're not the only fruit of a successful ministry. Paul's teaching here, a successful ministry that God has gotten a hold of is one where God is at work in the lives and hearts of the people and making their faith work, making their love into a sacrificial labor of love and growing them in steadfastness and endurance as they hope in Christ. That is a fruitful ministry. Faith, love, and hope. So that's number one, God's got a hold of you. Number two is the evidence of that. The gospel came in power. Um, before we read verses four to six, I just as a side note, I don't know if you're a write in your Bible kind of person. I very much am. I use pencils usually. A habit I've gotten into that has not let me down in the New Testament is circling or putting a box around the words for, so that, because, these sorts of words. Therefore, right? They help us see how what Paul or the, the writers of the New Testament are saying, how it holds together and how one thing supports another. So anyway, that's just a, something I do that I've found helpful. So let's read again from verses four to six. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power 
and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So the first word in verse 4 is for, which shows us that it's the grounds of something that came above. It's a supporting part of his argument. And specifically for that, we thank God for you. That's what Paul's supporting with this word for. So how do we know that God has gotten a hold of you? Here's how. Or more specifically, how do you know that the faith, love, and hope that we seem to see in this church actually comes from God? What if we just conjured this up? What if we're just good at looking Christian? How do we know that this comes from God? Paul's saying this, Our evidence that God has gotten a hold of you is that the gospel came to you in power. So first, he talks about the power in the preacher, and then he talks about the power in the people. So we're just going to look at those. Verse 5, power in the preacher. When he talks about the gospel came to you and power with the Holy Spirit and conviction, he's not talking about first how they responded to the gospel. He's actually talking about the way the gospel was preached to them. And he, he shows us that the preachers who delivered the gospel didn't just speak words. They didn't just download information. Now you have it. My job is done. They experienced the power of God through the Holy Spirit. And they experienced a deep conviction of this gospel's truth and power for their hearers. This is hard to explain. But it's unmistakable when you experience it. Here are a couple ways that I, as a preacher, have experienced the power of the Holy Spirit and full conviction. So I sermon prep all week, here and there, right? Between meetings and administration and all the normal things pastors do, I sermon prep where I can. Usually by Thursday or Friday, I have a sermon written. And my wife asks me, how's the sermon? And I usually say something like, preachable, right? And often that then by Saturday night, I know that I have done something in my flesh and I have thought my way to a sermon that while might be true, isn't an experience of the Holy Spirit's power and conviction of his truth for you. And so often on a Saturday night, you'll find me here writing a brand new sermon and then sleeping really well. And that's maybe slightly immaturity and inexperience on my part as a sermon writer, but God is very kind to me in that, to actually give me a taste of the power of the Spirit. I know the difference between something I've done in my own strength and something that God has given me for you. I'm very thankful for that. And sometimes, <laughs> more often than not perhaps, you'll see me break down in the pulpit and cry a little. I'm not an unemotional man, but I'm not really a public crying man even though Mo has called me the weeping preacher. <laughs> um, I've told some of this, uh, I've told this to some of you before, um, but um, here's when that started. About a year ago, 
I realized I didn't have a pastor on this earth anymore and that I wouldn't be sitting under anyone else's preaching for a long time. Now I get to sit under Ryan's. And so I asked Jesus on a Sunday morning before church to preach to me while I preach and to pastor me. And when I get emotional in real time, that's Jesus in real time ministering to me. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's me experiencing the full conviction of the message that I'm proclaiming to you. Those are a couple ways that I experienced that. Paul knew what I'm talking about. Paul got that. Sylvanus got that. Timothy got that. It's no credit or glory to the preacher at all. To God be the glory that we can preach with any kind of power in the spirit with full conviction. That gives me great confidence that God is faithful to you and to work among you. When the Spirit ministers a sermon to me from his word, I don't have to wonder if he's going to do it for you. And it gave Paul that same confidence. Now, verse 6, this is, that was the power in the preacher. Verse 6 talks about the power in the people. It shows us in verse 6 that the people who received the preaching were not sitting there disinterested. They were not unimpacted. They were not unchanged by the gospel message. They experienced the power of the gospel too. Notice that it says, our gospel came to you. Do you have a a category for a gospel that can show up at your door? For a gospel that can challenge you, a gospel that can confront you or comfort you or cheer you or guide you. This gospel was not just heard. The gospel came to them. You ever think about that? It's like in Jonah. It says the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, right? And that happens twice. The second time, it's when he's lying in a pool of unmentionable things spit up on a beach by a whale or a big fish. And the picture you get when the word of God comes to Jonah is footsteps on the sand showing up, saying, get up, let's do this again. I've got work for you to do. That's the kind of gospel that Paul's talking about, a gospel with legs, a gospel that can show up and do something. It's more than just a message. It's transformative. So here's a couple ways how it transformed the church in, the, in, the, of, uh, in Thessalonica. First way, they began imitating the preacher and the Lord. Their lives began to be shaped by Jesus and by Jesus's other followers. And this is a huge theme in 1 Thessalonians. If you hold the idea of imitation or kind of following in your mind and read the whole book, the five chapters, it's everywhere. But it's very, very difficult to talk about in our modern day and age, for me. I'm, I'm not a, a 75-year-old minister who's you know, had 50 years of ministry and failing well. I'm turning 35 this summer. I don't have that much life under my belt. Half of you are older than I am. Some of you could be my parents. But if you can't say, I can follow him as he follows Jesus, if I'm not living a life of holiness and faith 
and love and hope, find another church. The same goes for Rhine. It's that serious. That's how this works, guys. Otherwise, we are hypocrites. We follow Jesus actually. We're actually transformed by the gospel so that we are followable as we follow Christ. That's the first way they experience the power of the Spirit. It transforms their lives as they follow after Jesus. Second way is even though they were in the midst of horrible suffering, and this was suffering because of Christ, very few of us are suffering because of Christ in this room. That doesn't diminish the suffering you experience, but this is on a different level. They're suffering because of their faith in Jesus, and nevertheless, it says they are filled with joy. I call that unexplainable, spirit-fueled joy. Where else could that come from? So Paul knows that, that God has gotten a hold of this church because the gospel came to them with power. It was preached not in word only, and it was received not in the mind only. And if the gospel hasn't come to us like that, what are we even doing here? Anders Nygren, I probably mispronounced his name, but he said it really beautifully. He said, the gospel is not the presentation of an idea, but the operation of a power. The good news, the gospel, that Jesus died for your sins. The, he paid the price, the infinite price for your infinite sins against an infinite God that you could never pay. And he actually went in the grave for you. And then he defeated death for you and rose again, ascended to the right hand of heaven to rule and reign and intercede on your behalf, to send you his Holy Spirit to make you a temple of God. And he's coming again to take you home and to spend eternity with you. If that's just information, then you're not actually a part of that message until it becomes a power. The gospel is not the presentation of an idea, but the operation of a power. Paul says the same thing in Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. To be clear, you don't operate that power. You don't switch on that power. You don't control that power whatsoever. All you do is receive. Yeah. You just open our hands and the power comes. The gospel is not just information. God is actually able to change you. Not improve you. I mean change you. Norm and I were talking about this earlier. It's not like the Christian life is you and then Christ saves you and then this you just starts getting better. It's you, Christ saves you, you die with Christ, and Christ now lives in you. That's the Christian life. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, 
but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what it looks like to be actually transformed by the power of the gospel. There's a new you, a change of you. And it actually saves you from the wrath to come. Amen. Amen. This church's evidence, uh, encouragement comes from the evidence that the gospel came to them in power. And therefore, they know God got a hold of them. God's at work among you. And our own individual assurance, because this is talking about a church body, our own individual assurance comes from this as well. This is like a personal diagnostic tool. When we seriously ask the question of ourselves and of the Lord, is there this evidence in my life? One of two things is going to happen. You'll be driven to the throne to thank him for his kindness to you, to actually work in your life with power. You might realize what you thought was mundane and you just going about your life is the power of God in you. Or you'll be driven to the cross to ask for mercy and forgiveness. And at the cross, you do not encounter a good idea. You encounter God and the power of God for salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. So that's the evidence. Number three is the result. The result is far-reaching, God-glorifying fruit. So let's look at verses 7 to 10. Just like we knew that the last section was a grounds or an evidence for his argument, a support, because of the word for, here we know that we're talking about a result or a purpose of what came before because of the words so that. When you see so that, it's either talking about a result or a purpose. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. Uh, Let's read this. Actually, I'm going to start reading in verse 6, but you can leave that on screen. And you became imitators of us and the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So the Thessalonian church had become influencers. Man, can you imagine how cool it would be if Christ church was world famous for its faith in Christ? Or would it be better if Christ were known worldwide for his faithfulness to the church? I noticed while I was studying this week that the so that here, you have to ask the question, is it a purpose or a result? when you hit a so that. Uh, And this is a result. In other words, it's not like the church was aiming for fame. They didn't say our target audience is Macedonia and Achaia and we're not going to stop our mission until we're well known in the whole region. That wasn't their purpose. Rather, it was the result. Not because they aimed for it, but because God was good enough to glorify himself 
through the church's Jesus-focused faithfulness. Do you see the difference? There's a subtle and profound danger in seeking recognition. Do you know what happens when a church, a local church like us, tries to build a platform and a voice and an audience and seek its own recognition? Let me give you an example. We keep our fruit on the kitchen counter, told you I'd come back to the kitchen, in a little basket. And, it, you know, and my son eats about nine apples a day. So there's a lot of apples over here in the corner. And the other day I noticed there were a lot of fruit flies over there in the corner. So I thought, well, let's just get rid of those things and, you know, knock them out once for all. Let's get rid of the fruit flies and enjoy the fruit. So I, I washed all the fruit and I moved the basket and I sprayed the counter with white vinegar to clean it. Turns out, fruit flies love white vinegar. <laughs> My effort at getting one thing resulted in the exact opposite happening. My aim was to get rid of the fruit, fruit, the fruit, I can't say the word, get rid of the flies, but I got the opposite problem. When a church tries to glorify Jesus by getting famous for their own faithfulness and excellence, it's white vinegar on the countertop. And if what you're trying to do is glorify Jesus, what you're going to do is end up boasting in yourself and standing on a not Christ-like foundation, building a house on the sand, if you will. You'll find that they besmirch God's name instead of glorify God's name. But without seeking fame or recognition, this little church in Thessalonica had become known all over. God was faithful to his word and he was faithful to his church to give them not only work-producing faith and labor-producing love and endurance-producing hope, but to give them far-reaching, God-glorifying, soul-satisfying fruit. It's one thing to get recognized. It's another to get recognized when you didn't seek it and when God gets the glory for it. And this is all in the context of we thank God for all of you always. God gets the glory here. <coughs> Excuse me. The focus here, though, isn't so much on the fame. It's on the last section, verses 9 and 10. There's actually another triad here, like the faith, love, and hope. The three things he mentions here map onto, as we study the rest of the letter, faith, love, and hope. He's ending this first section by talking about what he began talking about. So as we read this again, we're thinking faith, love, and hope. He says in verse 9, the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. See the triad, the three, the group of three, the, the kind of reception we had among you demonstrates the faith of the church, which is from God, because they received the message of the gospel from the preachers, and they received the preachers. They received the message not as human words, not as just information, but as the word of God, and that's faith. 
Then turning from idols to serve the living and true God, that actually demonstrates the labor of love, which God gave them. For instance, elsewhere in one of his letters, Paul tells one church about an example of this kind of turning from idols to serve the living and true God as an act of love in this church. What I mean is, he's talking about the Thessalonian church when he says that they gave out of their extreme poverty to support the work of ministry. The Thessalonians were famous for having nothing and giving it all away. Why? Because they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. And what that looks like is sacrificial love because now all the resources and all the energy that were orbiting your idols are now orbiting the living and true God who says, love one another just as I have loved you. So it's a labor of love. And lastly, they waited for God's Son from heaven. And that is the steadfast hope that Paul mentioned earlier. So we don't, at Christ Church, we do not have to be concerned about building a platform or a following. We're concerned with encountering Jesus in the gospel with power in the Holy Spirit. We want Jesus. You can have everything else. We want to let our faith and love and hope flourish and blossom into a beautiful community full of unexplainable Holy Spirit-fueled joy in the midst of suffering. We don't have grandiose plans and aspirations here unless you count glorifying God as a new body unified to Christ into eternity, grandiose. Some of us um, at the personal level struggle to feel seen or recognized, maybe at home, maybe at church, at work, among your friends. It's really hard when you're working faithfully and laboring and toiling lovingly and you're doing it with endurance and you just, you're steady under it. You just keep going. And if no one sees you, that's hard. It really is. But the truth is, your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. This text stands as another evidence for us who often labor in secret that God sees you and God's got you and it's worth it and it's better that way. We don't have to fight for recognition. We don't, we don't have to eat the bread of anxious toil. We just know that our Father will take care of us and that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. God's gotten a hold of you. And I'm not saying this abstractly, I'm saying it to you. The gospel has come in power here. I see it. Which means that the rest of the letter is also for us. There's work to do ahead of us. This isn't a rebuke letter. This is a you're doing great, let's keep going together letter. And that's why we chose to preach this letter and this season to you. 
you're doing amazingly well. Thank God. He's bearing fruit on your branches. Now there's work to do. Growth in holiness and in hope. And for that work, I'm telling you, we are going to enter a season together as a church now of growth in holiness, not numerical growth, growth in holiness. And we need to know that God is at work in you through the gospel with the Holy Spirit for that work. So let's pray and then go to the Lord's Supper. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for communicating to us. Thank you for caring enough to stoop down and speak in our ear with words we can understand. And thank you for sending your spirit to interpret that to us in our hearts, to apply it to our hearts deeper than any teacher or preacher could ever apply it, and to comfort us and motivate us with the beauty of the gospel to carry on. Would you do all of that in us today? Amen.